0: Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, Revelation 14, 1. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him one hundred and forty-four thousand, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their Mouth, they are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud, was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. In the previous chapter, chapter 13, we saw how There was going to be tribulation, tribulation coming from two main sources that is, a political source and a religious source. And there would be many people who follow the beast and receive his mark. They would follow the beast and receive his mark, but the faithful were told to remain faithful in spite of all that. In this chapter, as is the custom in the book of Revelation, and in fact throughout the Bible, whenever God gives a message of judgment, a warning to unbelievers, and even a warning to believers not to follow the ways of the wicked, God also promotes encouragement. He promotes an exhortation for us to follow His ways because one day we will see Him, one day we'll be with Him, one day we will be vindicated, we will be relieved of suffering, and the wicked will receive their due penalty from God. And that's the content of chapter 14. Chapter 14 is more of an encouragement to us to understand and to put our hope in the future that God will fulfill His promises in due time. God will make sure that that occurs. That's our focus in chapter 14. Now, there are three main interpretations of how to take this book that we need to address. One of them is to look at this chapter as being fulfilled in a future tribulational period, that would be a literal or mostly literal interpretation of this chapter. That would be what the dispensational premillennial view holds. They hold that this will be a literal fulfillment in the future. Another view is the, is the historicist view And by this point in the book of Revelation, the historicist view that looks at the fulfillment of these chapters as taking place throughout history between the first and second comings of Christ, they take this chapter to be fulfilled around the time of the Protestant Reformation and after that. They say that certain people and certain angels represent certain figures and people and reformers in that period of time, 1500s, 1600s, and after that. Or another view, which is the one I hold, is the idealist view, which sees that these chapters primarily are describing the way human history is, and even in particular the way things are between the first and second comings of Christ, so that we take these more as imagery and symbolic of certain theological truths. And the theological truths are what I will seek to bring out as we study this chapter. That's the idealist view. So let's look at chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Here we have another description of the 144,000 people. 144,000. They were mentioned in chapter chapter 7. In chapter 7, there are 144,000. Chapter 7, verses 4 to 8... ...who have the seal of God on their foreheads. We know that this is describing those who are sealed by God, those who are redeemed. And as we said in chapter 7, we say again here... ...that this 144,000 best describes the fixed number, the sure number of God's elect. God knows the exact number and none of them will be lost all of them will be redeemed. Why do we say that? One example of why we say that is found in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, 6:37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives shall come. They belong to Christ. And they will not be cast out by Christ. That must mean there is a fixed number. We continue in 638. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Naturally then we ask, what is the will of him who sent? Christ. 39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That is the will of God. That... All that God the Father gives to the Son, the Son keeps them all and raises them up on the last day. That is the day of resurrection. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There we have Jesus speaking of specific people that are given from the Father to the Son and who will be redeemed and rise on the day of resurrection. Another example, which we've seen earlier, is Revelation 6. Revelation 6, Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. This is a scene of the martyrs at the throne uh, or at the altar of God. And this is what was told them. Revelation 6, 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. There is a specific number of fellow servants and brethren who are also to be martyred and then the end of time will occur. That's when their prayer for God's judgment will be fulfilled. That's when it will happen. So this is why we take Revelation 7 and here 14 verse 1 to be describing them, a fixed number. As he said earlier, here they have his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, this is actually in contrast to the previous chapter where the people who follow the beast have the name of the beast or the number of their beast on their foreheads or on their right hand. That's what they have, but the redeemed have the name of the Father and of the Son on their foreheads. They belong to God the Father and God the Son. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. He hears this voice And he says it's from heaven. This voice is from heaven, in heaven. And this is where he sees the Lamb of verse 1 standing. He sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. This is another argument to, to say that these people that John sees are not on the earth. They were on the earth, but they are actually in heaven. And the Lamb is there. And heaven is called here Mount Zion. We should not be surprised that... John sees a vision of what he uh, sees in heaven, but also that the lamb is in heaven and heaven is called Mount Zion. In Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 and verse 22, there too we have heaven referred to in this way. Hebrews 12:22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men, made perfect. There clearly, Hebrews 12, 22, Mount Zion refers to heaven. He says it is the heavenly Jerusalem. This, after all, from Hebrews 11, this was the hope of Abraham and all the other patriarchs. That they were looking for a city, a heavenly one. That's why they exercised faith in Christ. They were looking for a heavenly and eternal dwelling place. That's Hebrews 11 and verse 16. So, in the same way, we have here the Son, the Son of God, the Lamb, in heaven, where this scene takes place. So, when he sees this scene, he is seeing what happens in a full and comprehensive sense in the future, it will happen in the future, and he's portraying it, describing it as already done, because it's a vision and he's a prophet, and sometimes prophets speak of a future event in the present or past tense, because it is as fixed as God is uh, trustworthy. His promises are trustworthy, it will happen, just as he says, and that's why prophets sometimes speak in the past tense. This is what he sees. Now, when he hears the voice, the voice causes both fear and comfort. It causes both fear and comfort. The, the sound of the voice is like the sound of loud thunder. So this is ominous, it's dreadful, it's terrifying when we hear loud thunder. It arouses that uh, sentiment in John, but also it has the sound of harpists playing on their harps. When we hear Harpist playing. We don't think of something that's um, ominous or destructive. We think of that which is peaceful and calm and uh, serene. That's what we think when we think or, or when we hear the harpist play. So this has this vision he sees has both an element of judgment and punishment, but also of comfort and peace. It's a twofold aspect. This should not surprise us either. The whole Bible and the book of Revelation in in particular is full of these dual uh, views of the way we should look at life, the way that everyone should look at God, His righteousness, and also His grace and His love. In verse 3, the people, it says, they sang, the 144,000, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. No one could learn this song. It's a new song. We saw in chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9, it there also describes that they sang a new song. And we noticed in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, that it's called a new song because the people who sing it have a new spirit they have a new heart, they are redeemed. And this is what the Bible means by this new song, which we also find in Psalm 96, Psalm 98, for example, two examples. When the Bible speaks of a new song, it's talking about a song of redemption. In Revelation 5:9, they say, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Well that's what we just read in Revelation 14:3. Also, this new song is a song sung by those who were purchased from the earth. They were purchased by the blood of Christ. And so they sing a song of redemption in heaven before the four living creatures and the elders. Notice also verse 3 says, No one could learn the song. No one except the 144,000. It seems odd for some interpreters to take this to mean only 144,000 people will ever sing this song. Whether that is 144,000 Jewish evangelists or like the cultists say, like Jehovah's Witnesses, that only 144,000 people will go to heaven as spirit creatures without a physical, tangible body because they don't believe in eternal resurrection. So it, it doesn't seem likely that when it says no one could learn the song except the 144,000, that he is eliminating the possibility that all the redeemed are not, in fact, intended. For example, for example, Revelation 2, 17 uses a similar phrase on a different related topic, though. It says in Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, this, this special knowledge is not necessarily restricted in that only this individual knows the name and that God doesn't know the name, God doesn't know anything about it. When we say, when he says, no one knows but he who receives it, it's a way, a symbolic way to say it is a very special name. It's a special name. And that's what I think is intended in Revelation fourteen, three when it says no one could learn the song except the 144,000, it's intended to heighten the fact that it's a special song that only redeemed people can sing. That only redeemed people can sing. Verse 4. We continue to take this as redeemed people generally, a fixed number of redeemed people, by looking at verses 4 and 5. These are the ones... Who have, been, uh, who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They have kept themselves chaste. Literally, kept themselves a virgin. Kept themselves a virgin. They have not defiled themselves with women. Now, if this is the case, then this would mean that the 144,000 have to be, if we take it literally, it has to be that these are single people. Single people and... Uh, even single men, 144,000 single men who are Jewish evangelists, which some people take that viewpoint. But that's unlikely. It's unlikely because sometimes in the Bible, we who are redeemed are described as a virgin. We who are redeemed are sometimes in the Bible described as a virgin. For example, 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. The apostle says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you, you, the church, the Corinthian church, to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. There, the apostle says, That he wants to present the Corinthians, and by extension, all of the Christian church, to Christ as a pure virgin. That's what John means in Revelation 14, verse 4. He means it in in that sense. Um, Another place we can look is in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 13. Eighteen thirteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the nations, whoever heard the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Israel is called a virgin, but this virgin has behaved in adulterous and uh, fornicative ways against God. Instead of being loyal to God, They have been disloyal to him, unfaithful to him, and practiced immorality, meaning idolatry. They have forsaken God, who was their intended husband, spiritually speaking. Another example is Jeremiah 3, verse 6. Jeremiah 3, 6. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6. Here it's more explicit about what it means to be unfaithful. Jeremiah 3.6, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. She was a harlot there. And I thought, verse 7, After she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel... I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. When it says that Israel and Judah went to Every green tree, they went up on the high hills and under every green tree. It means they practiced idolatry because it was on the hills and the mountains that they would build shrines and keep their idols and the worshipers would ascend into the hills and mountains to practice their idolatry. But these here, the redeemed, they are faithful to God. They don't worship idols. Revelation 14.4 Also, it says in 14.4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That one is more easy to take and, and it's straightforward. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If any man wants to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. If you love Me, John 14.15, you will keep My commandments. It is very clear that if we love Jesus, we will follow Him. We'll follow Him And do whatever he wants us to do. And we will not be like the rich young ruler who hears a tough word and then walks away grieving because he owned much property. We will not do that. We'll follow Jesus and we'll do whatever he wants us to do. As well, Revelation 14.4 says, These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. They are described here As first fruits. First fruits from the festivals of the Old Testament, the the first fruits would be given to God as an offering and a sacrifice to God to show that we are grateful for what God has given us and therefore we ought to give to Him the first of whatever comes out of our crops. So that first fruits was a symbol of ourselves as redeemed people giving ourselves over to God, sacrificing ourselves to God. That's what it represents. For example, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the way the Christian lives his life. He lives his life as a sacrifice to God. Also, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice and fragrant aroma to God. We who belong to Christ ought to be imitators of Christ. We ought to walk just as Jesus walked. And imitate Christ as a sacrifice. So, the first fruits here in Revelation describe the redeemed, who are that to God. We are that to God—a special, initial uh, harvest of the crop. Verse five further describes us as the redeemed, and no lie, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless no lie was found in their mouth now this does not mean that true believers never lie never practice deception but they are not characterized by that they're not characterized by that they don't practice it they don't love it and then when they do do it they repent of sin for example when jesus saw nathaniel in john 1 john 1:47 1, When Jesus saw Nathanael in John one forty seven, He says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. In whom is no guile. No deceit. No lies. Because he, Nathanael, was a truth speaker. He was a straight shooter. He said what he thought, and he did not mince words. He told the truth, whatever needed to be said. That's how he spoke. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Not only Nathaniel, but we ought to be characterized this way. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Peter 2, 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, he says that we should put aside, take off all of this corruption from our spiritual bodies, malice, guile, or deceit, hypocrisy, which is another way of s- describing deceit, envy, those things that are, start on the inside and make us do evil things on the outside, and all slander, all false reports of other people. That's also something that involves deceit or lies. Well, the redeemed people of God are not described that way, they're described as those who have no lies in their mouth. No lies in their mouth. They're also blameless. They're blameless. To be blameless is a, a way to say to be above reproach. There aren't any glaring major sins that characterize the believer. Believers are not characterized by being murderers and adulterers and thieves and liars and, and uh, all kinds of other sins. We don't openly fla- uh, flaunt idolatry. We do not support the, the worship of images, idols. We don't do that. Believers don't do that. Now, we might do it in, in certain ways when we get tripped up by the world the flesh and the devil, but we don't love it. We don't practice it. So th- that's the sense in which we are blameless. That's the way the 144,000 are. He continues to describe what he sees. Now he's going to describe... The announcements and actions of three major angels, three that follow. The first one is in verse six, and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This angel is in mid heaven. Mid heaven is the place where you are readily seen and readily heard. It's. There where everyone can see and everyone can hear in a symbolic, figurative sense. So this, this gospel that is to be preached is to be preached so that all can hear. It's supposed to be preached so that all can hear. It calls it here, verse 6, an eternal gospel. Eternal gospel. Now, the gospel here mentioned, it has to be the one and only gospel. It has to be. Galatians 1, 6 to 10 says that there is only one gospel, and anyone who preaches another gospel, a different gospel, is under a curse. And in fact, the gospel that Paul preached is the gospel that Abraham believed. Is the same gospel that Abraham believed according to Galatians 3, 6 to 9, or Galatians 3, 6 to 14. And this gospel that Abraham believed in Galatians 3 was one that he, as a Hebrew, believed, but one that he was told Gentiles would believe. He was told that Gentiles would believe the same gospel that he believed. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3 6 to 14. And that's what we find right here in verse 6. This eternal gospel, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, predicted by the Old Testament pro- prophets. Announced by the New Testament apostles, that is the one true gospel. That gospel is to be preached to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. It's supposed to be spread abroad so that all might hear. And among all that hear, there will be some who obey and some who disobey. Verse 7. He summarizes the content of his message and he said with a loud voice, "Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters." Here, the gospel is summarized in the need to fear God and give him glory with a view to the day of judgment. Fear God and give him glory. Actually, whenever anyone has faith, that faith has to be preceded by fear because he has to hear of the day of judgment. He has to hear of the wrath of God, the sentence of the wrath of God that's on his head. And if he does not repent of his sins, the day of judgment comes and God will inflict that wrath on him from that day of judgment and for all eternity, eternal punishment. He has to hear it. And that fear of God, true fear, should arouse faith. If God grants the faith, the faith will come about. So the fear of God is a a catapult to faith. That's what is necessary. Fear precedes faith. And not only that, but it characterizes the believer from that point onward until the end of his life. He practices the fear of God. And not only the fear of God, but he gives him glory. He gives him glory because he's the creator and he's the redeemer. Give Him glory, thankfulness, praise, adoration, exaltation. All of this goes to God from the beginning of His conversion until the completion of His life when He sees Christ face to face. The fear of God and the glory of God are central to Him because He has a view to the judgment of God and He understands that He must now worship God instead of worshiping Himself. Instead of having his own will as his master, or for him to be subservient to false idols, pagan deities, uh, even uh, theoretical ones, even those that are philosophical and religious and theological, unseen uh, idols, whatever the idol is, instead of worshiping them, he must worship the true God, who is the creator, as verse 7 says. He's the creator. We see two examples in Acts, in Acts chapter 14, we have the first example. When the apostles preached the gospel, they also preached God as creator and also the, the fact that they needed to repent of sins and believe in Christ. An example we have is Acts 14, Acts 14, 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's the creator, and they preach the gospel, they say. We preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Instead of idols, worship the true God through the gospel of Christ. Acts chapter 17 is our second example. Acts 17. Paul the Apostle's in another place, in Athens, and he preaches this. Acts seventeen twenty-two, And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things." There we have God as creator. Verse 26, And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Then we read that there were different responses this last statement Paul made, by raising him from the dead, some people sneered at the thought of someone rising from the dead and that all people will rise from the dead. They sneered at this. They rejected it. It's clear from these passages in Acts 14 and 17 that whenever the Bible calls on people to realize God is creator, they don't just stop at that. That's just the beginning, that's the foundation to explaining the gospel. We have fallen from that initial creation, from perfection and original righteousness. We fell from that in Adam and Eve, and now there's corruption. And God is preaching the gospel now through his messengers so that we might be restored to perfection and that original righteousness, which happens now by a change of heart, a new heart, but then it gradually, progressively changes in this life, and then ultimately in heaven, fully just like it was in the Garden of Eden, but even better, because it will be forever. It will not be possible for us to fall again. That's the kind of gospel, this eternal gospel is, which the angel preaches. He preaches this gospel. Verse 8, another angel. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The second angel preaches judgment, preaches how Babylon the great, who is an immoral woman, described as a harlot, her immorality later in Revelation 17, 17 and 18, she's described as a harlot, a whore, a prostitute. This is the way the the great city of Babylon, is described. He describes it in the past tense. He does so because, like a prophet who sees the future, by the time all of this happens, Babylon will be past tense. It was great, as Nebuchadnezzar said, of, it, of himself. Is this not Babylon the great that I myself have built? He says this in Daniel 4.30. He says this about what he himself did. But later in the Bible, such as this passage, calling Babylon Babylon the great is not a good thing because Nebuchadnezzar was demoted and he was humbled. He was shown that he should not boast. It did not happen because of his great wisdom and power. It happened that he was able to conquer many nations because of God's great power and God's glory. Now Babylon the great is not great anymore. Because it's going to fall. It will fall because God is greater than Babylon. It will fall. So all that Babylon represents, this religio-political system that Babylon represents, will be destroyed by God. It will fall. Because not only have they committed evil, they have made all the nations drink of their evil. That evil is figuratively, the wine of the passion of her immorality. It is the sharing of wine that causes drunkenness and revelry in idolatry and immorality. That's what it's describing here. Babylon did this and spread this kind of corruption throughout the earth. Verse 9. Not only will Babylon fall, notice verse 9. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, Notice we've heard this loud voice several times. When the angels are speaking with a loud voice, the point is everybody should listen and will listen. It's inescapable that these announcements will be comprehended by everyone. Everyone will hear and will comprehend. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This third angel announcing that whoever follows the beast with the mark of the beast from chapter 13, he will receive the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Now, God himself is described as passing out wine. And the wine that God passes out is mixed in full strength. That is, it either has some spices that make it more desirable to gulp, to gulp all of it, or he has mixed stronger drink with the wine in order to make sure that the people who drink it are drunken and, and uh, dopey and mesmerized by that. They're going to reel because they are punished by God. The punishment of God will not enable them to maintain their strength to maintain their sobriety. It's going to make them like a drunken man who's wobbling and teetering and tottering here and there. That's what God will do to everyone who follows the beast, the Antichrist. Anyone who follows will receive this. But then there's also an eternal outcome. Torment by fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Torment. Jesus described the fact that when He returns, the angels will be with Him. In Luke 9, 26. Luke 9:26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus will be ashamed of those who reject Him because they take the mark of the beast. They follow Antichrist. And also Luke 12, verse 9. Luke 12, 9. And he who denies Me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. The angels of God will be witnesses. On the earth, earth, there are human witnesses to all that happens good and evil. But ultimately and forever... There will be holy angels, chosen angels, who will witness how evil people will be sentenced to eternal punishment. It heightens the severity of that e- eternal ultimate outcome in the presence of holy angels and also in the presence of the Lamb. Angels will watch and the Lamb will watch. Angels and the Lamb will watch this happen. Now, though it does not say explicitly right here in Revelation 14:10 that people will watch Jesus, gentle Jesus, and even the sappy savior mentality people have of him, gentle Jesus, sappy savior people have of him. Notice Jesus is going to be watching this. And he's not going to be watching with regret. He's going to be watching with Joy. He's going to watch how justice is executed, just as the holy angels will. And then thirdly, we also will do the same. Revelation, Revelation 18, Revelation 18, 20. Revelation 18, 20. It says, when Babylon the great falls, it says, rejoice over her. O heaven, and you saints, and apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Rejoice over her. Rejoice over the fall of Babylon the Great. Who is supposed to do that? O heaven, meaning the angels of heaven. You saints, that's all of us, and specifically also apostles and prophets, because they preached this, they wrote it, many of them suffered for this. Now they will see it. We all will see it, including us, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. The prayer of the saints in chapter 6, six nine to 11, is fulfilled. It's fulfilled by the time we get to these parts of the book of Revelation. We will see it, and we will experience that in the future. Now, also, it says that there is torment... There is smoke and it goes forever and ever. There's no rest day and night for those who worship the Antichrist. Now, is this torment and is the smoke eternal or not? Well, certainly yes. It says, in no uncertain terms in verse 11, it's forever and ever. If he wanted to say it's forever and ever, how else is he supposed to say it? He says forever and ever. And he also says they have no rest day and night. No rest day and night. Well, if there is going to be only temporary punishment, as some people believe, then why does he say it's forever and ever and there's no rest day and night? He would have said it would be for a short time or it would be for a long time or whatever amount of time he would say that that's how long it would take. But he does not say so. And then by the time we're at the end of the book of Revelation, near the end, in chapter 20, when the great white throne judgment is described, it even says there, it says there, this is the great judgment, the great final judgment. It does say in verse 14, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's where they are thrown. And also cross-reference this passage, Revelation fourteen eleven, with Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 46, when He says, But these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal punishment is contrasted with eternal life. If eternal punishment is not eternal, that one verse, that one sentence even, by the lips of Jesus, would also mean eternal life is not eternal. If eternal punishment isn't eternal, and it's the same original language word, same Greek word, translated the same way in English, eternal. Eternal punishment and eternal life. It is eternal. Daniel also, Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to eternal life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He says everlasting life and everlasting contempt. So this is forever. Forever because they have offended an eternal God with eternal consequences. Now, what should we do with this knowledge? Verse 12, verses 12 and 13. What should the saints do with this fact, this knowledge? Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Here is the perseverance. Here means herein. This is what it consists of. Having this knowledge is what will help us to persevere and keep the commandments of God and our faith in Jesus. We must persevere until the end. He who endures until the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Keep the commandments of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And keep their faith in Jesus. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. Uh, Romans ten nine. So this is what is necessary. Faith in Jesus and enduring faith that lasts until the end. Well then in verse 13, he hears a voice in heaven. How important is this? How important is all of this that he is learning? It's so important that he's supposed to write it. Write it. Why are things written? Things are written so that the successive generations can read it and learn it and believe it so that they can be blessed. He says, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Things are written in the Bible not for the benefit of that one generation but for the subsequent generations. It benefits them, of course, to hear it but it's not simply and solely attended, uh, intended for them, but also for us. For example, in Revel, uh, Romans Romans four twenty-three, it says, Now not for His sake only was it written that it was reckoned to Him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He who was lit, delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification." It wasn't for Abraham's sake only that it was said, it was reckoned to him. But it's also for us, for our benefit. That's what is meant here. Why he's supposed to write it. Write it so that we might read, study, and obey. And be blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, from now on, with this knowledge of the truth with this knowledge of the truth and the persevering faith in Jesus, this obedient and persevering faith in Jesus, if we maintain this faith until the end, in the Lord, another way to describe the Lord Jesus, in the Lord from now on, this is where blessedness resides. Blessedness resides in faithful adherence to Christ and His kingdom. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, In the last of the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Not because of our sins, but because of Christ. On account of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We should rejoice in this and be glad that we die in the Lord. Not only that, but our deeds follow after. We rest from our labors, from all the toil and sweat and turmoil of the earth. We rest from that, but then our deeds, our good deeds follow after us. That is, God will recognize our good deeds. Like Jesus described in uh, Matthew 25, uh, 14 to 31, He described, 14 to 30, how He described that he will tell us, well done, good and faithful slave. He will remember our deeds. He will remember our faithfulness, how we minister to people, how we love people, and how we're faithful to God. He'll remember that on the day of judgment because our deeds will show up in a spiritual sense on the day of judgment and God will be pleased. Now, the last section, verses 14 to 16 and then after that we have two kinds of harvests taking place. The first is like the harvest of wheat, and the second one is the, to collect the, the vintage of wine. The first one is of wheat, and the second one is of wine. In the first one, it appears that we should take this harvest to be a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and 36 to 43 Matthew 13:24 to 30 and 36 to 43 the parable of the wheat and the tares there Jesus announced that a day would come when the angels would be sent forth and they would reap the harvest of the earth and separate the wheat from the tares that means that there's a a collecting a gathering of the righteous and then the tares are also gathered up but then they're thrown into the fire the fire that was mentioned in the earlier verse, verse 11, that this is going to happen. The angel is sent forth, and the angel sent forth um, to, to speak about this judgment that comes. Now notice, though, who is the one who commissions and accomplishes this? Verse 14, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. It is Christ described here, one like a son of man. That's the same expression that we find in Daniel 7:13 and 14, and Jesus commonly identified himself as the son of man. This is the Son of Man who has a golden crown, a victorious crown on His head. He has the tools necessary, the implements necessary to reap this harvest. He goes and does so. The angel cries out that it's time to do so. And He does so. And the earth is reaped. And what does it mean? It means the righteous and the wicked are separated on the Day of Judgment, just as as it is described in Matthew 25. There is the the sheep and the goats, or Matthew 13, there are the wheat and the uh, tares. Now, 17 to 20. 17 to 20 here describes the punishment or judgment upon wicked people, upon the wicked specifically. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with the loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. As we saw before, we see that this is happening out of heaven, out of the temple of heaven, and here even. From the altar. Now, this altar is this altar in heaven, such as chapter 6, verse 9, and chapter 8, verse 3. This altar of incense, when the righteous saints prayed for judgment to come on the wicked. They prayed, and now God sends forth these angels to execute this judgment. They are equipped with a sharp sickle, sharp instrument, in order to. uh, cut the the grapes from the vine the clusters of the grape from the vine because it's time the time is ripe for judgment and what happens verse 19 and the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of god he collects all the grapes and they go to the winepress of the wrath of god This is why it's likely that this is describing only the punishment of the wicked because it's the winepress, the great winepress of the wrath of God. This winepress of the wrath. When the harvester is accomplishing this, he stomps and tramples upon the grapes so that the grapes that are in one area, one, one basin, the juice of the grapes, it trickles into another area where the juice of the grapes is collected. So, this is what is happening. And this is the winepress of the wrath of God. God's wrath will be inflicted on wicked people in such manner. And how bad will it be? Verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Outside the city. And blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Here, outside the city. Whenever something is outside the city, it is, some, it is thought to be accursed. It is considered accursed. Jesus was crucified outside the city, such as Hebrews 13, 11 and 12. And 13 describe where Jesus was crucified outside the city so that he could be a curse for us. But whoever does not accept Christ's curse for us will be cursed eternally. And that's why this wine press is outside the city. Figuratively speaking, outside the city means the place where their curse is executed. They are outside. And also, Revelation chapter 22 describes that Outside the gate of the city, uh, Revelation twenty-two fourteen says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside, outside the city, the heavenly city, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. To be outside the city, if you don't believe in Christ, is to be accursed. And it says... The blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles. The horse's bridles is a way that the Jews described widespread destruction, immense destruction. This is their figurative way of describing it. Even those who take a lot of this chapter literally, at this point, those literal interpreters even take this verse figuratively because they say, it's unlikely that 200 miles of the earth would literally be so bloody from devastation and warfare, judgment of God upon people, that the blood would go up to the horse's bridle, up as far as the horse's mouth. That it's unlikely that that was the case. So they even describe this as being a widespread and immense, uh, amazing destruction and punishment. Another place or another way it's described is it's a distance of 200 miles. This is about the length of the land of Israel. It's about the length of the land of Israel, north and south, 200 miles. So here is another way of describing figuratively that it's going to be all over the place. It's going to encompass all the people. This is how thoroughly God will punish the wicked. Let's gain encouragement from this. God has redeemed us. We belong to Him. We need to remain faithful and look to the day when Christ returns. He carries out the day of judgment. We should rejoice in that thought. He'll vindicate us and He'll vanquish our enemies. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.